So last week we started a new series about legacy, about making an impact, about uh, fulfilling God's plan for your life, understanding that, that whatever his plan for you is, it is unique to you and that he wants to use you in a way that, that, that nobody else, he's, he doesn't want to use anybody else in that way, but also it's corporate in that your part in that plan for his kingdom purposes is, is working toward a common goal, a common vision, a common plan that he has for his entire church. You know, there are one of two ways, really, that we can make an impact. You know, our, our series title is Making an Impact in Your World, right? And the, the key, the truth, the goal is being faithful and leaving a legacy. That's how we do that. We're faithful to God, we leave a legacy. Making an impact, there's one of two ways you can do that. <clears throat> you can do it in a positive way, or you can do that in a negative way, right? I mean, one way, obviously our goal is to make a positive impact for the kingdom of God, but we see throughout scriptures uh, the scriptures many times where people didn't make a positive impact. And the stories that we have in there, the accounts that we have, are for the purpose of us learning a lesson in what not to do. And we're going to see both of those in this series. As we look at these figures, some of them known, some of them uh, lesser known figures in the Bible, we're going to see examples of those who were faithful, even with their flaws. We're going to see those who were not faithful. And today is one of those days where we're going to look at one who most of you probably know and is an example of what not to do. And this is the story, of course, of Cain and Abel. And we look in Genesis chapter 4 to see that story. Uh, this is a story, this is the original crime scene, okay? This is the original crime committed, uh, man against man. And it is the crime of murder. And you know, you look around in our society and we see examples every day of this sin. Uh, the sin of murder. Just in the past several months... The, the mass shootings that have taken place. And on July the 17th in Greenwood, Indiana, a gunman opened fire in a food court in a mall and killed three individuals, wounded two others. On July the 4th, the Highland Park, Illinois, 4th of July parade, a gunman opened fire and killed seven. In Uvalde, Texas, May the 24th, an 18-year-old shot and killed 19 students and two adults, injured 17 others. And we look at those, and of course, all of those things tend to be politicized, and we hear about all of those things, and, and, and it's almost like we hear them, and, and it's new, right? Like this has never been a problem. But we see in Genesis chapter 4 that that's not the case. Even... In history, we look during a 50-year period. This is just a, a happy message this morning. I'll go ahead and warn you. Um, during a 50-year period from 1959 to 1999, serial killers stalked and killed hundreds of victims. The FBI says that during the 1980s alone, roughly 35 serial murderers were active during that time. But again, 1985, let's push the research back. If you go back before 1900, the prevalence of multiple murder, mass murder, spree killing, serial murder is really statistically about the same as now. 
The reporting is more instantaneous now. Technology gives us greater access to these stories, so it feels like more, but this isn't a new problem. Some say the problem's getting worse. Some say it's getting better. There's actually some numbers to, to show that, that, that murder per capita is going down some. Whether it's better or worse usually depends on where that person falls on the political spectrum. The reality is it's always been an issue. It's always, since sin entered the world, this crime has existed. I encourage you, if you can handle it, if you spend a couple of afternoons researching murder itself, again, if you, can, if you can stand it, you'll come to one inevitable conclusion, I'm confident, and that is this. Where there are people, there is murder. And it's been that way since sin entered the world. All we have to do is trace the crime backward in time, and where this begins, this sin begins, and it begins at the very beginning of human history. So let's look at this together. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Let's read through, and then we'll dig in. The man, Adam, of course, this is after the fall. Adam was intimate with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have made a male child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious, and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The first crime scene, the first murder takes place. And there's some lessons. Again, some of these folks, we're going to learn from their mistakes what we should do, what we shouldn't do also. And there's some lessons that we learn from this story of Cain and Abel. And the first is this. Obedience to God is non-negotiable. Obedience to God is not negotiable. He expects and deserves total obedience. You know, I want to sift through, kind of investigate this crime scene a little bit, this original crime scene. And, and, and in doing so, we're going to uncover the truth about what happened and what should have happened and what we should learn as a result. And we're going to see several, not just one truth, but several truths from this that we see preserved in this story. The very first murder amazingly takes place just in the second generation of humanity. You think about that. It points to an undeniable, I believe, theological truth that we see in Genesis 4, and it's this. Humans are murderers, not because we commit murder, but because we are murderers at heart. Now, just in case you got hung up on the word murder there, okay, let me rephrase it. Humans, we are not sinners because we've sinned or because we've committed sins. We sin because we are sinners. 
Sin entered the world, and we are sinners by nature. We are fallen. Yes, we choose to sin, and that's part of it, but we are sinners because when Adam and Eve chose to go against God's plan, sin entered the world, and as a result, you and I, all of us are born with a sinful nature. We are fallen. We, are, we sin because we are sinners. And, and the reason this is important is because this is a problem of the heart. I mean, this isn't just about the actions. The actions reflect what's going on in the heart here. Murder is just a fruit of a heart problem that you and I all share. Now, you may never take it that far, but we all have this condition in our hearts. It is the byproduct, murder is, of a twisted, selfish nature that came to all humankind as a result of Adam and Eve's fall in Genesis chapter 3. Now, another observation. You think about, okay, Genesis chapter 3, first generation of humanity, they fall into sin. And then, very quickly after that, in Genesis chapter 4, we see murder. Now, you would think, human rationale, that sin would have progressed more gradually than that, right? Maybe Adam and Eve start by telling little white lies. Maybe, you know... Their, their sons, their children get involved in some, some minor theft or something like that, right? Maybe a few generations you got, you know, maybe racketeering and, you know, maybe embezzlement and then a little more serious violent crimes. And then maybe five, six, seven, eight generations down the road is when the first murder is committed. But no, immediately, the fall of man, Genesis chapter 3 then the next generation, we've got this horrendous crime of murder. Now, that's an important observation, I believe, because what we see here is the result of corruption. You know, there's no such thing. Corruption is not gradual. Corruption is corruption. When sin enters the world, mankind becomes corrupt. Corruption is corruption, plain and simple. It does not develop slowly. When I make a choice to go against God, when I am lost before salvation, when I am lost in sin, I am just as sinful no matter what sins I commit as the murderer. Sin is sin. And what, why, why that's important is because sin corrupts the whole person. And so in order to be free from sin, something has to happen to recreate that whole person, to totally cleanse that whole person. Corruption is not gradual. Murder's bad enough, but when it, it takes place between family members, it's especially, in, in our minds, in our judgment, it is especially horrible. The word brother here in these verses, in verses 9 through 11, is used six times. I think that's there. I believe that's there to highlight how serious this is. That this is family. That this can take place between two brothers. Adam and Eve named their first son Cain in the Hebrew. It's most likely a word play on the word, the Hebrew word kana, which there are two possible meanings for. One is to acquire, the other is to create. Now, when you look at Eve's reaction, 
uh, and, and we, in, in the opening part of this, in verse 2, or verse 1 rather, she, have say, she says, I have made a male child with the Lord's help. I think the second meaning is probably what's the accurate uh, translation, uh, to acquire or create. Um, she's, she's essentially what she's saying here is that she took part in a miracle that only God had done prior to that. That she was involved in that. I believe that's an accurate understanding. Then they have another son. Now there's some who believe they're twins. We don't know for sure. At any rate though, he's given the name Abel. Which is the Hebrew word for breath, vapor, or futility. Now I encourage you not to read too much into that. I think, you know, some people, you know, say it was a foretelling, you know, that, that his life was going to end young, maybe. Uh, some say it was because he was sickly you know, as a child, and, and she named him as a result, and that certainly that could be a, a, a possibility. But what we know is what we need to focus on, and that's that we are told that Cain chose to become a farmer like his father, and Abel was a keeper of flocks. And then we're told that these adult brothers bring their offering to the Lord. So obviously they understand the rules. We don't have all of the rules at this point of how to bring an offering, what to bring, how to, and, and the manner in which to bring it. But we see in verses 3 through 5, in the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. So... Bottom line is, God is displeased with Cain's offering. He's satisfied with Abel's offering. We don't, you know, there's been a lot of debate as to whether they broke the rules, whether, because it was maybe supposed to be a blood sacrifice and Cain's wasn't. Um, we don't know that for sure. Uh, what we do know is I'm confident that God told Adam how to do it and the, the right way to do it, and he passed that on to his sons. And that Cain did not do it properly. We get a little more insight in scripture later on. But the bottom line is God knew their hearts. He knew their motives. And he had, he had set a standard for how this was supposed to happen. These offerings, these sacrifices. And Abel had done it properly. Cain had not. And God sees the heart. He knows all. And, and, and the, the fact is... That Abel had been obedient, Cain had been disobedient, which brings us back to that first truth, and that's that obedience to God is not negotiable. God has a standard, He sets the rules, He is truth, He defines what's right and wrong, and what He says is right, and what He says is right is right, no matter what anybody else says, what He says is wrong is wrong. No matter what anybody else says, and when we break those rules, we are sinning against God. If we disobey God, there are consequences, and that's what happened. You know, a lot of people, you take this principle and apply it to modern day, and there are a lot of different ways to apply it, but let's just look at one. There are a lot of people out there that would say that there are many paths to God. That if you choose whatever religion you choose, as long as you are sincere that you are pursuing the truth, that you are faithful in whatever religion that is, that that eventually we will all get to the same result, and that's to heaven. That we will all find God, regardless of what, you know, your religion is. The problem with that is that's not what God said. 
God has set the standard. He has set the path. And the only path to himself, to God the Father, is through his son, Jesus Christ. If you believe the Bible, and that's the problem, many people don't, and I understand that. But if you accept the Bible as 100% inerrant, truthful, the revelation of God, his word through man, inspired by the Holy Spirit to us, the Bible is very clear. Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. But this is one example of the issue of obedience versus disobedience. It seems hateful, it seems mean, but it's not because I wouldn't, if I didn't love, if I didn't love you, I wouldn't tell you the truth. There are those who choose to say many paths to God, but the reality is unless you follow Christ and accept the salvation that he provides, you are being disobedient to God. There is no middle ground. It's obedience or disobedience. And you've heard me say this before, by the way, any hesitation in obedience is disobedience. God expects, God deserves instant, complete obedience. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never been perfect at that. There are times, there are some people in my life that would testify uh, that I tend to be a little stubborn at times. And that comes out in many ways. One of the ways that I have experienced consequences for that is in my relationship to God. But I grow, I improve, hopefully we all do. But what should happen is that when God says, do this, don't do that, there should be no hesitation on my part. I should obey immediately because that's what he expects. Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by which people must be saved. Again, salvation through Christ. Now, two perspectives from the first part of this story, really quickly. The first is this. The Lord is loving and kind, but he is also just. All right, don't mistake. This is a message about sin. This is a message about the consequences of sin the justness of God, the righteousness of God. But he sets those standards for our own good. And he does that because he is love. God is very loving. But he is just. He's been specific in how we're to come to him. But he could not have made, listen, there's one path to God. But even the fact that there's just one shows that he could not have made that any less complicated. How simple is it? We complicate things. Even the concept of many paths to God is complicated. But Jesus said, no, I've made this as simple for you as I can. You come through me. You go through Christ. I mean, it is just that simple. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And it is grace, a gift that we do not deserve. And in mercy, we're not getting the punishment that we do deserve. It's simple. But... That's God's standard. He's done everything that needs to be done. Only thing that's left for us to do is to accept that gift, to choose him, to be saved. I mean, if you think God is this harsh, mean, you know, vindictive person, the concept of salvation by grace through faith in him is about as mean as a billionaire demanding that you allow him to give you all his money. Because it's a gift. It's a free gift, eternal life. We just accept it. But then faith, the other principle here, faith demands action. 
If we're going to accept that gift, we've got a responsibility. Our life is no longer ours. We have a responsibility to obey. If you really believe God, you will do what he says, when he says it, and how he says it. Again, none of us are perfect in that, but that's the goal. That's what we should strive for. In his strength, we can be obedient and faithful. The manner in which both of these guys approached God revealed the authenticity of their faith. Cain did it his own way. Abel did it God's way. And we got clarification in Hebrews 11 that this is true. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. And even though his, he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. Abel did it in faith the way God asked him to, the way God required, Cain did not. True faith is marked by obedience. John explains it this way in John chapter 3, verse 10, 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God. Whoever is not obedient, whoever is not faithful, especially the one who does not love his brother or his sister. So Cain has two strikes there, right? He was not faithful, and then he hated his brother. He killed his brother. Now, that's God's appraisal of the offerings of Cain and Abel. Abel's offerings were righteous. Cain's offerings were evil. Obedience to God is not negotiable. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two is this. Our relationship to God, with God, affects everything. And there's another important theological truth here that we see. And that's that the quality of our horizontal relationships depends entirely upon having a good vertical relationship with God. If Another way to put it, if you're not right with God, you're going to find yourself at odds with everyone else, including yourself. Your relationships, your horizontal relationships will suffer if your relationship with God is not, is not good. Cain's reaction is interesting here. Look at verse 5. The last part. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. I mean, he knew what he was supposed to do, yet he chose not to do it. Then, because he didn't receive God's favor for being disobedient, he gets mad. He becomes despondent. He becomes angry. And it was all over his face, evidently. I think he was jealous of his brother at that moment. His brother was accepted. He wasn't, but it was his own fault. Maybe he didn't want to be outdone by his younger brother, but again, he knew what to do. He didn't do it. You know, jealousy is a common response to somebody receiving something that, uh, that, that, or somebody else receiving something they think they deserve. I mean, it happens with our kids all the time, right? One of them gets a toy, the other one thinks they should have it. They fight, you know, and hopefully they don't kill each other, but you know, but we see it everywhere. Adults do that, you know. Somebody gets a nicer office than somebody else and they think they deserve it or, you know, whatever. Perks in, in, in life, something good happens that, they, that, that you think you should have or, or whatever. I mean, we've all known the emotion of jealousy. If we're honest, we've all been jealous of somebody else at some point or another. It's strange, though, that, that, that jealousy usually tends to target the least logical person here. Cain was angry, and he takes his anger out on Abel, and Abel had done nothing wrong. I mean, you would understand if Cain got mad at God. 
mean, God was the one that didn't approve. Forget the fact that Cain did what was wrong, but still. Or maybe even gets mad at himself for not doing it the right way. I mean, you would understand that, but no, he gets mad at Abel, the only innocent one other than God in this story. He gets mad at him even though he had done what was right. And we need to take a step back here, I think, and do a little bit of a self-analysis on this topic, on this important truth. If you begin to feel jealous, which we all have, right? It's important to stop for a moment and think because your anger is probably aimed at the wrong person. There's probably something else going on that's causing that jealousy, that anger. Another important truth here. Choosing to do wrong puts a person at odds with himself. And usually there's something you've done or something you're not doing that you should be doing that's causing that feeling of jealousy. Don't miss what God says here to Cain. Verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? He had not done what was right. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. He's saying, Cain, if you do wrong, it's your fault. But if you do right, I will accept you just like I did your brother. It's your fault. You are responsible for this. You knew what to do, yet you didn't do it. You did the wrong thing. And in a lot of areas, we see a failure in our society to take responsibility for actions. We see people making excuses everywhere for crimes or even things that aren't considered crimes. I've seen parents, instead of getting on to kids for when they do something wrong, blaming other people for their children's actions. Let me let you in on a little secret. And by, we're by no means perfect parents, but you are not doing your kids any favors doing that. No, We have a society where it's always somebody else's fault. I think one of the best things we could ever do is just take responsibility for where we fall short. All of us. Because the tendency, the temptation when we do something wrong is to look for somebody else to blame or somebody else to get mad at. And the reality is is that we all mess up from time to time. And the other reality is, is that this is nothing new. Again, second-generation humanity, we see this going on. Cain, he made the mistake, and he immediately gets angry at his brother who had done nothing, absolutely nothing wrong. Charles Swindoll says this. He says, truth without love is cruel. At the same time, love without truth is deceptive. We've got to be willing to show grace and mercy and love, but we also have to be willing to... Speak the truth and live by the truth. You know, the counsel here that we should be giving to to ourselves, to our kids, to everybody is that you are responsible for each and every choice that you make in life and the consequences that you receive as a result of your choices are yours. They're your own. We all experience consequences, good consequences, bad consequences, based on the decisions that we make. And as painful as it is, as difficult as it is, we have to take responsibility for our actions and and understand 
that the consequences that come with them are ours to own. Lesson number three. It's a le- that's a lesson, by the way, that Cain did not learn, evidently. Lesson number three. Unresolved sin corrupts everything. Unresolved sin corrupts everything. And this points to another theological truth. Leaving a sin unresolved makes us vulnerable to more sin. Look at verse 7. God says, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. I mean, the, the picture here is that we've cracked the door open to sin. That we've committed a sin and we've opened the door and, and sin's just waiting to pounce. The devil's just waiting to pounce. Because when we open ourselves up, when we've got unresolved sin, we're opening ourselves up. We're more vulnerable to committing more sin. And sin's a scary animal waiting to attack. If you drop your guard, if you forget to stay alert, you're vulnerable. The word translated rule here is desire for, is for you, but you must rule over it. That's the same word that's used to describe a king having dominion over a land or a people. We rule over our sin by the power of God. We can't in our own strength, but we do it by turning away from sin and repentance and turning to God, accepting him initially at salvation, accepting the gift of salvation, but then even as believers, we turn away from our sin and we put ourselves at the mercy of God and we submit to him and by his power, his strength, his spirit living through us, we overcome or we flee from temptation and overcome that sin. We rule over it, but it's ultimately he is the one who rules over it. Verse 7 is a loving, warming reminder That Cain, again, if you think God's cruel, God's still giving Cain an opportunity to turn things around here before he commits this horrible crime. He's done things wrong, but God's saying, listen, if you will do this right, if you'll repent, if you'll do this right, I'll accept you. I will show you grace here. I will show you forgiveness. He has the opportunity to do the right thing, and that opportunity doesn't end just because he failed the first time. He can ask forgiveness. He can go get the right offering. He can do it with the right heart. He can do it the way God said he was to do it, with a humble, obedient heart. And the lesson for us is, if you're here today and you're alive, which I'm assuming all of you still are at this point, if you're here today and you've done something wrong, It's never too late, as long as you're alive, to start doing the right thing. If you're not a believer, it's never too late, as long as you're alive, to accept Christ. But you don't know how long that will be, and today is the opportunity that you have. If you are a believer, and there's something that needs to be righted in your life, it's never too late to ask God for forgiveness and to do life the way he desires to obey him to live in obedience God tells him if you'll do what's right you'll be fine you can't let wrongs linger that's true in our relationship with God and that's true in our relationships with each other that's the point of Ephesians 4 26 and 27 be angry and do not sin don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity the general theme of Paul's letter 
to the church at Ephesus is unity. Church unity. Great for a church. Perfect for any relationship. Essential for any marriage. Unfortunately, Cain blows off this parental advice. He kind of just ignores it. And so his resentment grows like a cancer. Look at verse 8 of Genesis 4. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and he killed him. So instead of accepting God's offer of grace, he lets his resentment grow. His anger grow. And he commits this horrible, unthinkable crime. The Hebrew word translated killed him is a term that's used for murder, judicial execution, and animal sacrifice. Now, again, I don't want to read too much into it, but it's almost like Cain gets so bitter and so angry, he says, all right, God, you want to sacrifice? Here you go. I mean, who knows for sure, but what we do know is that instead of turning it around, he chose to nurture that anger, to nurture that resentment. The man whose name more than likely means I created became the first man to commit murder. And we need to remember the same murderous heart that was beating inside of Cain beats inside of all of us. If we don't handle sin, at the moment we're convicted, we can find ourselves doing something we never thought we would. Sin crouches at your door, my door, just like it did Cain's. You know, thankfully, though, your murder list can be empty by the power of God, by the grace of God. All those blank spaces where murder could be are because of God's grace, the power of Christ. If we will trust in him, if we will receive forgiveness, and if we will we'll pass that forgiveness on to others, we need to give it to and seek it when we need to seek it. But I've met people with murder in their hearts and murder in their minds. They may have, may have never committed the act but they won't let it go. Nurture your resentment and it will grow into anger. And that anger will put down deep, deep roots and turn into hatred. And the fruit of hatred is murder. You know, think about it. How many murderers do you think just woke up one day and said, hey, I think I'll kill somebody today? Most of them, now there are exceptions, but most of them never in a million years would have thought they would have ended up doing what they did. But somewhere along the way, they made a choice that led to another choice that led to another choice that ended in that horrible action. It's because they didn't deal with sin. They didn't deal with that wrong action to begin with. It ultimately led to that unthinkable act. By degrees... They nurtured anger and resentment until it grew to hatred until they committed that horrible crime. Unresolved sin hardens the heart. And we don't know how much time passes between verse 8 and 9. We're not told here. Eventually, the Lord confronted Cain with his sin, but take note of the hardening of his heart here. Verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother, Abel? I don't know, he replied, lie. Am I my brother's guardian? Short answer is yes. Then he said, God said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Any sin that's kept secret on earth is the front page headline in heaven. You can't hide your sin from God. We cannot hide from God. God knew exactly what Cain had done. 
He confronts him, but Cain's heart was too hard. Cain would not soften his heart, and so God responds with justice. Verse 11, so now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. So Cain's sin makes the cultivation of crops impossible, which ends his livelihood. He would be on the road permanently. And now we finally see some emotion from Cain. Cain answers the Lord, verse 13, My punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, and I must hide from your presence and become like a restless wanderer on the earth, whoever finds me will kill me. God had, had, had pressed Cain for a confession. Don't forget this is after he's told him, if you will confess, if you will turn things around, you will be accepted. But Cain's only compassion we see is for himself. He had no compassion for his brother. He's been caught, he's been tried, he's been sentenced, and now he begs for mercy. He could have had it before this. It's pretty interesting. He's sure at the end of this, he says, whoever finds me will kill me. It's kind of interesting. He just assumes that everybody else would do the same to him as he did to his brother. Because that's his frame of reference. That's his frame of mind. But even God with all of this shows grace. Look at verse 15. Then the Lord replied to him, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Now you're probably wondering what that mark was. I don't know. (laughs) I wonder too. But here's what I know. God, in his grace, preserved Cain's life. The only reason I can see for him doing this is to give him a chance. Sometime in the remaining years of your life, maybe, Cain, you'll, you'll turn back to me. Maybe you'll repent. And when you do, I'm ready to accept you. Maybe. I wish stories like this ended on a happier note than this one, but here's how this one ends. Verse 16. Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. But we do see an important final lesson in this, and that's this. God's way is our only hope. His way is our only hope. Bad for Cain here, but maybe better for us. Three timeless principles very quickly as we finish. The first is this. God's way is the only acceptable way, so take it. When the Lord gives clear instructions, like I will honor a certain offering, then our response should be obedience. When he says, come to me through faith in Jesus Christ, then our response should be to accept Jesus Christ as the only way to the Father. Don't offer God good deeds. They're not good enough. Don't come to him with a sincere belief in a religious system that doesn't claim that Jesus is the only way because that's not enough. He's made the way plain and simple. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Take it. It's a free gift. Second, jealousy is a sin that cannot be hidden, so release it. We've all had that emotion. We've all struggled with it. But the question of whether or not it becomes a killer is whether or not we release it. Jealousy plants seeds in the soul that ultimately lead to anger, resentment, hatred, and yes, possibly even murder. Be content with doing what is right. Let God handle the rest as far as whether or not others will face consequences because God sees it all. No sin goes unpunished. 
Third, never leave sin or conflict unresolved, especially with God. Address it. Unaddressed, lingering anger doesn't vanish. It smolders. It goes into remission. Then it multiplies. And then it comes back stronger. Most wrongs don't correct themselves. Two wrongs don't make a right. They require attention and effort. It's not going to go away. Anger itself is an emotion. It's not a sin. It's where we allow that to lead that can make it a sin. Now, I do have my doubts as to whether or not flawed human beings can truly have righteous indignation, but anger itself, by definition, is not a sin. And sometimes resentment's an understandable response when you've been wrong. Not necessarily right, but it's understandable. But if we hang on to it, it can destroy us, and it can possibly destroy the people that we love. And resolving conflict, sin, whatever, regardless of who's guilty, the best place to start is with my relationship with God. Because if I've sinned against you, I've sinned against him. Start there, but then we have to be willing to reconcile with each other. We have to be willing to forgive and seek forgiveness. Hold ourselves accountable. Confess sin. Confess your part in it, regardless of how small it was. Own it. And then we can find peace. Peace with one another, peace with God. Even as a sinner, we can live with peace, but we have to deal with sin. Now, I want to illustrate this very quickly. I got uh, some buttons here. You may wonder, why does he have buttons? Well, you're going to find out if I can ever get a hold of them. A couple of buttons. I sent Gracie for buttons, and she's ready for Christmas, so she came back with Christmas-colored buttons. And let's just say this water represents your life, Okay. And we're all, we know we're born sinners. I mean, we are sinners by birth, but we choose to sin, right? And whenever we choose to sin, it's kind of like dropping a button in water, okay? This water is clean right now, but once I put a button in there, it's not going to be clean, clear water. There's going to be something in it. So let's just say uh, the sin of, of uh, hatred, okay? You let your anger grow into hatred, all right? There's one. Maybe the sin of theft, right? Or maybe you even just tell a little white lie, for instance. I mean, there are any number. There are tons of sins, right? I mean, there's, uh, there's jealousy. I mean, there's envy. I mean, the list goes on and on. You can just fill your list with whatever, okay? Whatever it is that you're dealing with. But what we usually do is we take those sins and we try to bury them down deep. And all of these buttons are at the bottom. And that represents how we just, try to, we just try to push them down, right? We don't want to deal with it. We know it's a problem. We know it's there. We just want to push it away. And then if we leave it there long enough, we're going to try to cover it up. And I've got a Coke here. And we're going to say that this represents our attempt to cover up the sin. Because even though these are buried, you can still see them. So you got to do something else to try to cover it up. So we're going to add the Coke to the water and see if we can cover up our sins and see what happens. All right. Something very interesting happens to our buttons that were once at the bottom. They all eventually float to the top. So we tried to cover it up. And maybe if they had stayed at the bottom, we wouldn't be able to see them anymore. But no, those suckers just came right to the top. That's what happens with your sin. You may be able to fool some people for a little while. You may be able to keep it hidden for a little while, but eventually it's going to come to the surface. And even if nobody else sees it, God sees it. And that should be a truth that convicts all of us, every one of us, 
if there's something in my life, in your life, that needs to be dealt with, God knows about it already. And it's not going to go away just because we ignore it. We have to confess. We have to come to God. And, and whatever you're thinking about that's your thing right now, guess what? Everybody in this room has a thing that they're thinking about right now. We all have mistakes that we make. We all have things that we've done we know are wrong. And so the question is, will we repent, turn away from it, turn to God, reconcile with God, or will we continue down that path that could lead to destruction? You can't hide. You certainly can't hide from God. Better to confess and receive forgiveness. The mistake that Cain made beyond the initial mistake was that when he was given the opportunity to receive God's grace, he refused. And it led to an even worse action. God offers grace. Will you receive it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness that you offer. It is only by grace that we are saved. Jesus, you gave your life. You died. You paid the price. We can't earn it. There aren't enough good deeds. There aren't many ways we can get to it. There's one way, and that's through you. That is accepting the gift that you offer by your death and resurrection for forgiveness, for salvation. And I pray that if there's anybody here who has not received that gift, that they would accept you today. For those of us who know you, I pray that we would be committed and determined to obey you continually, faithfully. That when we make mistakes, which we all have and we all will, that we would learn from that, that we would repent from our sin and turn to you and turn away from that sin and not let it be nurtured and grow into something worse, whatever that sin is. You offer grace and you offer forgiveness. You offer restoration. You offer new life to those who are lost. You offer restoration to those who know you who have fallen into sin. You offer forgiveness. If we will seek you, if we will seek that forgiveness, Lord, I pray that you would just allow us to take in your word this morning and respond in a way that pleases you, whatever way that is. In obedience, though, that we would obey your word. For it's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen. Would you stand for our time of decision?